the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. So is Ontario open for business, as Premier Doug Ford keeps saying, or is the government showing the private sector that it will just rip up any contract it doesn't like? On Monday, the governing Tories at Queen's Park tabled legislation to terminate the provincial government's contract with the beer store. Finance Minister Vic Fideli insists the legislation will prevent taxpayers from having to pay penalties to break the contract, but representatives of the beer store say they will fight the move in court. And what about the 7,000 employees who work at beer store outlets across the country? What will happen to their jobs? Libby Snymer was joined by John Nock, president of the union for the beer store, to discuss. We were shocked of the of the move yesterday by the PC government to cancel the master framework agreement governing beer retailing in the province. Um, it's basically an assault on good paying jobs and agreements negotiated in good faith. Ford has promised no one would lose their jobs as a result of his policies. He's now cancelling contracts, creating chaos, and cooking, kicking good-paying jobs to the curb. We'll fight this to the best of our abilities. What are you planning? I mean, you did have a bit of a campaign in the lead-up to this, uh, and it didn't seem to have any impact on the government. Ford has made many promises no one will lose their jobs, and, and we were relying on those promises. And now... Now he's he's made the change and we're going to have to find out what's happening from here and do what we have to do to, to fight this legally. What are your grounds? I mean, the, is it the contract with your workers or what, what would your legal grounds be? Yes, for us, it's the contract with our workers, severance pay, um, ob, uh, pension obligations, benefits, those type of things. Our contract is with the employer, obviously, and the employer will fight the government as well. The employer is on the hook. The government isn't on the hook. No, but I think that is part of the master framework agreement that any costs associated with changing that agreement will be on the backs of the government. Has there been any kind of blue skying about uh, how many jobs would be lost? I mean, presumably the beer store would still have some business, even if this contract is cancelled. At this point, we we have no idea. We we know that there are 7,000 jobs on the line. As far as how deep it goes, that will depend on the government's next move. Okay. And uh, can you just tell us what you have planned in the coming days or weeks to try to keep this on the front burner to protect your employees? Well, we are, we are, we're active on social media. We are going to start doing leaflets and campaigns in front of beer stores. We want the public and the taxpayers to be aware of the potential fallout of this, the safety of the communities. As you know, we're province-wide, and we have many, many, many employees in every community of this province. That was John Nock, president of the union for the beer store. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The decision to end the contract with the beer store six years early was just one of several announcements made this past week by the Ford PCs. The premier also canceled retroactive funding cuts to municipalities. And two of his cabinet ministers announced an update for the future of Ontario Place, which won't include a casino or condos. 
There is certainly a lot going on these days coming out of Queen's Park. Joining Libby to discuss all of the developments, former Liberal Cabinet Minister George Smitherman and Conservative strategist John McEtitian. I think for anybody who's a professional as an observer or some associated field of government relations, polling, research, uh, lobbying, um, uh, mystifying because we don't know whether the government is brilliantly negotiating by pushing things out hard, having the world get all upset, and then pulling back and looking reasonable, or are they operating from chaos that they don't really know what they're doing, and uh, they end up where they end up uh, because they can only have so many people screaming at them before they listen. I think the, the premier and the government may get what they wanted in the long run in that there's not anybody in Ontario who knows next budget for all the municipalities. They uh, they don't have any money guaranteed. But uh, Doug Ford was elected last June, and all the municipalities, all those politicians, didn't get elected until October, and their budgets came after. So it was presumptuous of all of them to think they had any money. So I think the government uh, missed an opportunity to say, we never promised you anything. You're relying on an old government who spent recklessly. So where are you getting that from? The the beer store, you know, this is where, uh, you know, uh, bad news story comes out. So a news story comes out to change the channel. That, that would be the uh, analysis of people who think the government is uh, governing brilliantly. And maybe it is. Or maybe they've just got so many files happening uh, at the same time that it's happenstance, right? Like this is the most activist uh, government, I think, in uh, provincial history. And it's also the most, um, uh, it, it's not like any other. It, it is absolutely unique in its um, uh, speed at which it's trying to do things. Uh, absolutely, they are willing to take on any institution, any organization. Nothing is sacred. So it's not at all surprising that when it comes to the uh, the beer contract, they looked at that and said, well, this is ridiculous and we're not bound by it and, and we're going to uh, change it. George Smitherman, you were in a former liberal government, not the one that signed the original contract. Why would a government sign a contract that says it would be, quote, binding and enforceable against the province despite its status as the crown, even where the alleged breach results from a change in legislation or public policy. Why, why would a liberal government have signed that? Well, I think they would have signed that at the uh, encouragement of uh, their negotiating partner on the other side. I have uh, just a little bit of legal experience and exposure to those points. And I'm not sure even if you have that in a contract that it can be binding. The, the jurisprudence around the uh, supremacy of a parliament's ability to act in its area of jurisdiction is quite strong. I think even where private uh, enterprise is uh, caught up in all of that. And there have been a variety of issues associated with cancellation of contract and renewable energy and stuff that have somewhat already looked at those issues. I think that the government, in this case on the beer store, uh, thinks that it's in a powerful place, that it has a lot of lawyers, and at the end of the day, uh, this is entirely aligned with something that they seem to want to project as a theme, which is uh, access to uh, access to booze is good. I have to take issue with what John said about the idea that municipalities casting their budgets after this government had been elected were irresponsible to assume any money. I mean, that's really ridiculous, especially as this government campaigned, as an example, on the tax, on the gas tax, when they campaigned in the election, they said, we're going to maintain those commitments. So 
I thought that was a bit of a stretch on uh, a stretch on John's part. And I'll say one more thing: you can open up a hundred files, but they take two to three years to take across the line. What these folks are doing right now is bringing everything onto the front burner. They're setting fire to every file at the same time without taking stock of how much energy, internal energy inside the government, it takes to legislate and bring these things across the line. I think that they're getting themselves in a heap of trouble with all of this so-called activism, and it's, uh, and I think that the activism is, uh, is going to look day by day more and more like chaos. Former Liberal Cabinet Minister George Smitherman and Conservative strategist John McEtitian. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It's an ongoing issue for anyone with a loved one in long-term care. Is your mother, father, husband, or wife getting enough care? What can happen if they're not? It's been recommended that every resident gets four hours of care a day. But those who work in long-term care say that is simply not realistic. Libby spoke with Kelly Stevenson, who's a personal support worker, and Charlene Stewart, CEO of the Union Service Employees International. We are in a crisis in long-term care. That's how serious the issue is at, in, in this time in 2019. Uh, we've been sounding alarm bells for decades over this, and we are now in the, in the position where we're saying there is a crisis in long-term care. We need probably hundreds, if not thousands of more staff added to the nursing home, uh, caregivers. At least hundreds of to thousands. The hours of care is an issue, like you mentioned, that we are uh, pushing for a minimum of four hours of personal hands-on care per day per client. Right now, we're falling short of that. The average is below two hours a day. So there's many issues of concern here that we're bringing forward. The reality of it is, at least according to the statistics, is that the people, the the clients who come into long-term care, when they come in, they, they are older, they are sicker, and there has to be more specialized kind of training, particularly in how to handle patients with dementia, who can become violent, uh, all these big issues. Exactly right. And that's all adding to the crisis of care is that the care is becoming heavier over, over time. And we have a much more seniors in the system now. Baby boomers are taking up space. And that is one of the issues is that the shortage of staff is also adding to the crisis because the care is much more heavier. And Kelly will have stories to share with you. It's just exactly how heavy that care is. And, and Kelly, thanks so much for being with us. Give me an idea of what your day is like. How many clients, patients do you have to deal with? What are the kinds of things that you have to do for them? And, and um, how do you get it all done? Or do you get it all done? I work uh, full-time nights and there are only two of us for 32 residents. And, uh, we do everything just as in the daytime. We have to toilet residents. We have to reposition residents. And if a resident feel hungry or thirsty, we have to provide uh, n- nourishment for them. So the workload is heavy because we have high demand um, residents where you'll have, say, um, 
toilet in a resident. A resident needs to go to the washroom. I'll be toileting a resident, but there is the bed alarm going off. There is a call bell going off. Those residents are asking for attention. But according to policies and procedures, I cannot leave that resident in the washroom by themselves. So there you have the, the bed alarm going off, but I am with that resident. How do I go assist that resident who is about to crawl out of the bed and have a fall? This is why we're asking for more staff. Have you had uh, been there when when things have uh, really gone from bad to worse because of that, where somebody has had a fall that could have been preventable or something like that? I have been because more times than many um, than not, really, I am on the floor by myself. If a colleague calls off, we call it working short because then that two staff, if they cannot replace that person who calls off, then I'm there by myself and I'm still responsible for that 32 residents to the CEOs that are raking in these big uh, bonuses and salaries like greed is not a need. Okay, please put the money and the focus where it should be, which is providing more staff for our residents, care for our seniors. They deserve that. Care for me so that I don't have to hurt myself trying to do a, a job that is meant for two persons. PSW Kelly Stevenson and Charlene Stewart, CEO of the Union Service Employees International. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. In the first nine months of 2018 alone, nearly 3,300 people died of opioid-related overdoses across Canada. Ontario is joining British Columbia in a class-action lawsuit against opioid manufacturers and wholesalers as part of a new mental health and addictions bill. The national class action lawsuit was launched last year against more than 40 opioid manufacturers. It alleges 20 years of misinformation and deception by pharmaceutical firms and distributors that knew or should have known the drugs were addictive and seeping into the illicit market. This is in addition to a private class action lawsuit launched on behalf of victims, which we told you about recently. On the topic of opioid addictions, Libby spoke with pharmacist Dean Miller and Fardus Hosseini, the National Director of Research and Public Policy for the Canadian Mental Health Association. This is a growing problem, and it's, it's, a, it's a very sad problem as well. And I think you had quoted the number of deaths that, you know, are happening across this country today, which is a far cry from where it was, say, 25 years ago. Um, you know, over time, I, I, I think for a couple of reasons, you know, overprescribing is definitely one thing. Opioids were never meant to be used for longer term pain anyways. I mean, they are always there. It's a shorter term solution to acute pain. I mean, that's really what it's there for. And, uh, you know, over time, we've seen overprescribing more and more med- medications, more and more medications that end up on the street, more and more medications that are sort of adultered to 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 be you know laced with something and and what ends up happening is 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 people die and uh that's that's what we're faced with today thousands of canadians dying every year um from opioid overdose just give me an example of what you would see in your practice somebody coming in with what kind of a prescription and 
You know what? Uh, and this is <laughs> this is no shot against dentists, but dental pain is a is a good example, right? I mean, dental pain. You know, usually only lasts a couple days. You know, unless you've had a really serious problem. You know, getting a prescription for a hundred oxycoset or something like that that you know would last a person a month. You know, or, you know, over over time. I mean, you can easily take them for a couple days until the acute pain is gone, and then move on to something else like an anti-inflammatory. And that's not done enough. That that's not still still. You know, even with all the the press and media around this very topic, you know, it's still a, a very, very bad situation. Yeah, and I, I'd like to bring in Fardouf. And I remember the last time we talked about this, I was talking to Mike Merriman from the Paramedics Association. Mm-hmm. And he was telling us that his wife had some not very big, big deal, like it was a sprain or something. She went to a walk-in clinic and she walked out with a prescription for a 100 OxyContin. Uh, Fardouf, is, is this what you see as the problem or a big part of it, the overprescription? Yeah, I think liberal, liberal prescribing of opiates by physicians is definitely a problem. Uh, but the thing for us and something that we've noticed is that when it comes to mental health services in this country, it's chronically underfunded. And why a lot of people are resorting to substances is to numb psychological pain. So let's not even focus on physical pain because that's a huge piece of it, but uh, there's greater people that you can speak to to talk about that. But there's also psychological suffering that individuals are dealing with. So if they're dealing with anxiety and depression and they have to be on long wait lists and can't see appropriate uh, healthcare professionals, they're resorting to substances to help numb that pain and to help mask that struggle that they're dealing with. And I think that's an important element of it, and that's something that we have to address because... With opioids, though? Yeah, some people people are using opioids to numb those pains. Yeah, so you know to you're numb saying, you know, numb psychological pain. I've I've never heard of that. Yeah, that's one of the underlying issues of this crisis is the psychological suffering associated with social inequalities, right? So, uh, lack of health care, lack of child care, you know, access to education, employment. So, individuals who are struggling and don't have any outlet to see someone appropriate, a healthcare professional, they're resorting to using substances, and we know that can be quite detrimental uh, when they get addicted to it. There's no real silver bullet in solving the crisis, but we need to really take a multi-pronged approach, and that's focusing on decriminalizing drugs who are treating substance use and addiction as a health issue, not a justice issue, uh, investing more dollars in harm reduction, you know, investing in treatment, and addressing the social inequalities that have led to people dealing with psychological suffering and as a result needing to be dependent on substances. I think we really have to take a multi-pronged and multifaceted approach to this crisis, and we really have to get ahead of it or the numbers will only get worse, and we're seeing that year after year. So. Okay. And Dean Miller? I'm going to take a very practical approach to this. We haven't talked about naloxone. Um, naloxone is available in a nasal spray. It's available in an in inject, injectable. If you have opioids in large quantities in your medicine cabinets, you know, your neighbor has it, get down to the pharmacy. It's free. Uh, ask your pharmacist to, to give you one and keep it because uh, it may not be you. But it could be your neighbor, it could be a child, it could be a teenager, it could be anybody in your life that at some point you may be faced with. Uh, and the pharmacists tell you how to use it. Uh, don't worry about that. It's free. Do it. 
Pharmacist Dean Miller and Fardus Hosseini, the National Director, Research and Public Policy for the Canadian Mental Health Association. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. William in Toronto phoned to say he's concerned about the rush to sell beer in corner stores. Too many uh, projects going on at one time and they're not being properly implemented and administered. And beer is not important. They can wait 10 years and they can be put in the beer store at that time. You don't have to do it now. So uh, a little less havoc and the destruction here. Not so many projects all at the same time. You can't handle them, obviously. Cynthia from Toronto called to share her experience of taking opioids and finally quitting. You know, the anticipation of, oh, no, one less, oh, no, one less. Um, for me, it worked. Now, if you have heart conditions and things, I was sicker than a dog. I needed them at the time, and I thought I was thinking very clearly when I was on them. But now I'm thinking clearly. Not realizing that I wasn't thinking, you know, what it did to, to the brain as well. And, and I was, it was masking problems in my body that I didn't even realize I had that bad of problems. So now I go forward and address those things. Diane in Toronto called to tell us how she invested in extra help for her elderly aunt in a long-term care home. I'm power of attorney for my aunt, and I arranged for her to go into long-term care. Now, the first thing that was said to me by the personal support workers was, if you want her to be cared for, you should really arrange for a personal, private support worker for her. Now, this is a sitter that the uh, family pays for. It was $25 an hour. And what this person does is actually a sitter. They help with feeding them, looking after them, and... uh, their care. And this is what I did. So I really recommend if you have a family member that you're putting in one of these places, it is expensive, but it's well worth the money. Elizabeth in Scarborough phoned to say she thinks consolidation between municipalities and the provincial government to find efficiencies is a good idea. I think we must attack the debt. The debt is a big thing for Ontario. However, I think this pause is good and it might open a lot of eyes and realize, let everybody say, hey, we've got to do this. Joseph in Toronto called to say he thinks the Ford PCs are in too much of a rush to push through their agenda. This is a government that's moving too fast, too quick. They've only been in power less than a year. And this is what they're finding out now. The mistakes are one after the other. And then they, they, they find that polls are down. The, the premier gets calls on his cell phone and his office. And then, of course, they call in his caucus. They call in the people closest to the premier and say, no, we have to bow down. That is not effective government. It isn't. Cynthia from Toronto called to share her experience of taking opioids and finally quitting. You know, the anticipation of, oh, no, one less, oh, no, one less. Um, for me, it worked. Now, if you have heart conditions and things, I was sicker than a dog. I needed them at the time, and I thought I was thinking very clearly when I was on them. But now I'm thinking clearly. 
not realizing that I wasn't thinking, you know, what it did to, to the brain as well. And, and I was, it was masking problems in my body that I didn't even realize I had that bad of problems. So now I go forward and address those things. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Michael in Toronto, who feels the Toronto Raptors have created so much love for the game of basketball. I believe people really tend to watch sports as they've been involved in. Myself, I'll watch tennis all day. I'll watch football, baseball, you know, stuff like that. But I was not a basketball player. So for me, Raptors, well, it's nice they're in the, the, uh, the finals, but it's, it's no big deal. That said, basketball, like soccer, it's a, it's a cheap sport. All you need is a ball and a hope, a hope to shoot it in. And um, <clears throat> we have a huge fan base in Toronto as a result of that. So it's not surprising they're so popular. It's not surprising that they're so loved. And uh, I really do wish the Raptors well. It would be great for the city. It was good for the people of Toronto. Go Raptors for tonight's game, too, at 8. We'll all be watching. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. 